welcome to the Mastering Your Healthcare Career podcast, hosted by Dr. Anthony Stanowski. It can be hard to decide the next step to advance your career in healthcare. Join Dr. Anthony Stanowski, President and CEO, Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Management Education, otherwise known as CAMI, and longtime mentor in the field as he interviews guests about the challenges and successes that shaped them into the leaders they are today. Whether you want to continue your education, make a change in your career, or learn what it takes to lead, this is the podcast for you. I am Melissa Cross, CAMI Education Manager, and joining Anthony on today's podcast is Marcus Whitney, a self-taught software developer, entrepreneur, Amazon number one best-selling book author, and venture capitalist. Marcus is founding partner of Jumpstart Health Investors, the most active venture capital firm in America focused on innovative healthcare, and founder and general partner at Jumpstart Nova, the first black healthcare venture fund in America. By investing exclusively in black-led healthcare businesses, Marcus is empowering black entrepreneurs to create opportunities to address disparities and work toward achieving equity in healthcare. Marcus shares how he created his foundation for success, the challenges he overcame, and what keeps him motivated. Now here is your host, Dr. Anthony Stanowski, and special guest, Marcus Whitney. Melissa, thank you very much. That was, uh, that was quite an introduction, Marcus, to some of your background and, and what you've done. I, I think the fascinating part when you, when you read through your book is you realize that it was a hard journey getting to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about what motivated to get to where you are today and a little bit about the difficulties along in that journey. Yeah. So first, thanks so much for for having me. It's uh, it's 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 great to be speaking with you today, Anthony. Um, you know, in terms of motivation, I, I think it is pretty clear to me. In hindsight, my motivation was being a parent, uh, being a father. Uh, you know, I sort of start the book twenty years ago when I arrived in Nashville, college dropout, waiting table six and a half days a week, and uh, the very first thing I needed to do was create a much more stable source of income for my family. And so b- before becoming entrepreneur, I had to get sort of the, the foundational skill set uh, that I would then use to parlay into entrepreneurship, and that was learning how to code. Uh, and it was a it was a bit of a loophole because the internet was outpacing uh, academia, which is somewhat relevant to our conversation today. The internet was out was out was outpacing um, education around the internet, and that meant that companies that needed programmers couldn't require a degree because the degree didn't necessarily mean they were going to be trained in the latest web technologies. And so I was able to use that loophole to study on my own, build websites, you know, on my own independently build a portfolio and get my first uh, job as a junior developer at a company called Hellstream here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, you know, parlayed that into the rest of my career. Uh, but, you know, without a doubt, if I was, if I didn't have my back against the wall as a, as a dad of one kid and then another on the way, uh, I, I'm not sure I would have, you know, worked six and a half days a week and then nights and weekends and, you know, in between shifts studied as hard as I did to, to sort of make that leap. Um, so, yeah. And, and in terms of like, why was it so hard? I think that uh, entrepreneurship is a career. All, all careers have, have difficulty. I think entrepreneurship is a full contact sport. And um, you are exposed to all aspects of business. Whereas often if you're an employee, you sort of like, focus in on one particular area of business. Uh, and I talk about the different areas of business in my book, you know, leadership, finance, operations, marketing, uh, sales, product, um, service. So, you know, most people, if they're, if they're taking a career path and they're an employee, they'll usually like find their way on one of those 
uh, particular concepts and get really, really strong and then be part of a larger organization where other people are handling those, those areas. If you're an entrepreneur, um, you, especially starting companies, you have to understand all of those concepts. And in the beginning, you have to do all of those things. Uh, and so that's, you know, the degree of difficulty just naturally increases because what you're trying to do is just fundamentally broader and more difficult. Uh, and then if you were not classically trained, which I was not, then you learn in the school of hard knocks, which I did. And so difficulties arise when you're playing with real money, real, real employees, real companies. It's not playing, but that's what it is when you're on the process of learning. So, you know, failures is somewhat inevitable, but that's how you really do learn uh, in this in this walk of life. Now, it's, it's interesting you mentioned motivation being your child. And I remember when I had when we had our first uh, uh, child or my daughter, my mom said to me, children bring good luck. And I went, well, what do you mean by that? She goes, you have to work hard once you get children. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the, it's the truth. It's the prime motivator that, that starts out there. Now, you know, uh, you, you mentioned in your book, uh, Create and Orchestrate, the path to claiming your creative power from an unlikely entrepreneur. And in, in, the, in the beginning of the book, you talked about how you had your book all ready to go and COVID-19 hit. And uh, you said, I had to go and I had to change my pre preface and kind of alter a little bit within the book to kind of account for that. I think it's been an interesting twist with COVID where innovation, entrepreneurship, things are changing and they're not going back to 2019. They're going forward in a whole different approach. Talk to me a little bit about how you really kind of see innovation as uh, kicking up a notch at this point. Yeah, so we're a little past the the year of me having to reflect on that as the world shut down and my my book published date was June 30th of last year. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I I I, uh, I time stamped the the note that I added in the beginning of the book, sort of acknowledging the fact that we didn't know what the world was going to look like. But it's you know, I think if we all try to put ourselves back to that to that point uh, a year ago. I mean, we had never seen the kind of unemployment, the bankruptcies had already started by this point, right? And mm -hmm. so the idea that I was, you know, entrepreneurship and, and my book, uh, you know, it's the topics are, they're kind of like uplifting topics, they're exciting, kind of hero's journey kind of thing. You know, at that moment, what I was most worried about was that it was just going to be completely inappropriate and, and come off as very, very tone deaf for me to be talking about entrepreneurship when it was clear we were in the middle of a societal state of emergency, right? Um, and I ultimately made the decision that as I started to see us all reverting to video calls and e-commerce and Amazon and delivery, uh, you know, um, Instacarts and all these other kinds of things, I was like, yeah, if we if we didn't have entrepreneurship, we would be in way worse shape now than than we would have been otherwise. Um, and I also could really clearly see that things already that things were not going back. It was very clear to me things were not going to go back. This was going to be a longstanding thing. And so, basically, came to the belief that my book and others like it were going to be necessary because a whole lot of people were going to have to reimagine how they were going to engage with the world and they were going to have to do through have to do so through the lens of entrepreneurship 
um, you know, that, that some industries would not return, right? Um, and and we, we would be experiencing this uh, sort of unasked for creative destruction uh, that would happen because as the world was quote unquote shutting down, we had also reached this point where the internet was at scale and ready for the moment. You know, if you think, if you think about it 10 years ago, we would have been in way worse shape, right? Because the internet was not ready for, for this moment 10 years ago, but it was ready in 2020. It was ready with the streaming services. It was ready with Amazon. It was ready with the delivery services. It was ready. It was ready. It was ready with zoom. And so uh, that to me was the signal that, wow, a lot of wealth is going to transition. A lot of, a lot of industries are going to be uh, accelerated in their demise and people are going to have to understand some of these fundamental building blocks of entrepreneurship. And so it, it, it actually increased the importance of me getting the book out, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. When, when I, when I came to that belief. You know, it was, I mean, it's funny. I have a very good friend who's heading up the, uh, um, the American Telemedicine Association. And her comment was when she joined it, I joined the Sleepy Association. I was seeing some growth, but, you know, it was really hard to where it was going. And then all of a sudden, COVID kicked in and we became, you know, the, the number one most important organization in the world. And a lot of, a lot of uh, money was kind of flowing into that area. And I think, you know, you, you've seen that. I think the interesting part around this is it's really kind of taught us what to do when the next crisis kind of comes on and how do we need to adapt to that, some of the skills and competencies that we need. What, what have you seen has been, um, you know, and, and I know you've talked to a lot of different people and you've seen, looked at a couple, several different companies. What do you see as kind of the core competencies that make some people, some organizations maybe a little more successful during this time? Well, look, I mean, the, the, the basics are, uh, are they, are they digitally literate, right? You know, um, it, were they able to engage cloud-based technologies and, and streaming and social networks and, you know, all of these e-commerce, were they able to just sort of seamlessly shift into those things or was there an entire upskilling process necessary, um, for that? And I, and I think, for those that were able to seamlessly just adjust into into these tools, it's kind of you know it was it, it ranged from being not that big of a problem to in some cases like you know hyper growth right hyper growth because they were able to sort of take advantage of of this this loss of of uh, economic activity from the brick and mortar world. Um, I, so I think that's that's fundamental and and it's actually something that really really worries me. Um, you know, as someone who uh, it has been self-taught. The foundation for all the success that I've been able to achieve was that I started with learning technology, um, specifically web technology. And so I'm 45, so I'm not a I'm, I'm not a digital native, right? I'm just I, you know when I grew up there was a rotary phone in my house and you know sort of things of that nature, right? But because when I really got serious about my career, I started with web technology. And back in 2000, when you were starting with web technology. It wasn't abstracted the way that it is today. And let me just sort of explain what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, today, we have uh, tons of uh, companies that are like service layers on top of the internet that are actually what people interact with and interface with. So the obvious ones would be like Google, Facebook, Amazon, but then there are other ones like Stripe, right? That just got valued in the private market at like $96 billion. And, you know, most people who aren't 
engaged in uh, online businesses don't know just how much money flows through this company every day because you never see them. They're kind of like Intel inside, but they're a service layer on the internet, right? And so when I was learning the internet back then, Stripe didn't exist. Like all these things didn't exist. So I had to actually learn the internet, the, yeah. the actual like HTTP and TCP IP and you know, the email protocols and all of these like fundamental things. And so when I'm looking at the world today, like I, I mean, I can explain to you how Zoom has worked. You, you know what I mean? Like I understand it. And what worries me is that we have, you know, at this point, not just one generation, but multiple generations, I would say millennials and, and Z that are not really get, like they know how to consume it and they know how to interact with it. They have the old digital native thing going on but they don't necessarily know how to drive it outside of like taking videos and putting them on TikTok and things like that. And that's concerning, right? Because the real value creation is not on contributing free content to these networks where you then are actually the product and you're being monetized through ad networks. It's by actually creating value on the internet, <laughs> you know, adding to the layer of value creation. And so that worries me, right? That, that worries me um, that, that that is going to be that it's just going to continue to be such a fundamental part of how the economy works and that we aren't teaching it in high school um you know and then we really don't teach it in college honestly you know uh so and we're talking about coding and i don't think it's coding i think it's internet literacy i think it's like actually understanding how the whole thing works yeah yeah it, it, it almost you know it, it reminds me a little bit of 100 years ago or 70 years ago when uh, automo automobiles kind of kicked in mm. had people who really understood how the cars worked and i think yeah. I think of my father who really was a mechanic and could get in and you know fix a car when it broke down on the side of the road compared to where i am today which is hey i pull into the uh, auto mechanic and he fixes things and i don't worry about it and in fact the auto mechanics have to be so much more sophisticated than where they were that's right and I think, you know, we're at that, we're at that point in the internet age uh, that you're just kind of describing as well. So you have the venture capital fund. So there, there's a, a one venture capital fund that you have, and then you've kind of spun off or spun out another one, uh, Jumpstart Nova, um, the first Black-led healthcare venture fund in America. And talk to me a little bit about that project, what your goals were, what you really wanted to try to accomplish with creating that. Yeah, so so important. It's, it's not. I don't know that it's the first black-led healthcare venture fund in America. But what we're what we're referring to it as the first black healthcare venture fund, and the reason for that is it is majority black-owned. The the general partnership that's running the fund is majority black-owned. But probably more important is that 100% of the investments that we're making are in companies that um, have black founders in them. That's that's actually kind of the really important thing. Um, is the the criteria for capital allocation. Um, is specific. So, uh, it, so what what was the question? Because I wanted to make sure I just sort of clarified that. Well, I I, I think it gets around that, which was in, intentional investing. I mean, yeah. really kind of, and and tell us, you know, a little bit about, you know, why you went ahead and kind of started this fund. Yeah. So so, over the last twenty years, I've sort of worked from technologist to, uh, you know, startup leader to entrepreneur to investor. I've been working my way to this side of the table uh, over the last 20 years. And what I've realized is how much leverage exists in capital allocation, right? And I then started to understand how venture capital brands and private equity brands are unknown 
to the general public, right? So the general public knows Facebook. The general public knows Google. The general public knows Amazon. The general public knows Apple. The general public does not know Benrock. General public does not know Sequoia. The general public does not know Bain Capital. General public does not know these, these capital brands. But all the brands I said that the general public knows would not exist if it were not for the capital allocators, okay? And so you're not only talking about these, these companies that have become these multinational utilities at this point, right? You're, you're talking about them being created from an unseen force uh, of leverage that is actually completely unnatural to the way that an economy would work if they didn't exist, which is to say, these companies are invested in with hundreds of millions of dollars that allow them to, to lose money for very long periods of time while they build market power mm-hmm. in, such, in such a way that when they do turn the revenue generation on, it's like they go from making no money to hundreds of millions of dollars overnight. But it's because people have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the run-up. And this, and it's not even a new thing. Like if you look at, um, you know, the role that J.P. Morgan played in electricity and steel, and uh, you know, AT and T back in the day, that this this role of the financier, who would bet on the entrepreneur and back them for a very very long time because it would take construction or science development or something like that to sort of truly make a market shifting business possible right? Um, that's, that's what capital allocation is. Uh, and then furthermore, you know, there's, there's the people who allocate their capital, and I'm going to get there in a second, but they're the people who allocate their capital to these funds, right, which are these big pension funds or these big endowments, okay, that also people don't understand, you know, like, like, look at the size of Harvard's endowment, look at the size of Yale's endowment, you know, is multi-billion dollar endowments. And so they, that's how the, the, the flow goes. It's like they are funding the funds, the funds then fund these companies, these companies then create these multi-billion dollar approaching trillion dollar companies. So now, and, and, and they have taken over like wealth. They've taken over wealth. They've taken over value. If you look at all the billionaires, it's gone from like, you know, Gates to Zuckerberg to Bezos to now Musk, right? These are four white men. And so now you have to look at who's allocating the capital and who's getting the capital allocated to. And that's where you get to the real, the real serious issue, right? Which is, um, it is just so overweighted towards white men allocating capital to white men that you have this, this unseen, misunderstood, unnatural force in the economy that is significantly dif- disadvantageous to everybody who's not a white male, okay? And, we're, and, and the really s- s- tricky thing about it is when you then add media to it, you know, your fast companies, your Inc. magazines, your entrepreneur magazines, you start to kind of create these hero-like ethos around these people who are successful. It, it creates this feeling of superiority like these people are superior in their capabilities and the reality is the point of leverage that is actually creating this this massive disparity is capital allocation Mm -hmm. so yes and so just to like drive it home in venture capital it's been well stated you know harvard business review etc have said it like one percent of venture capital prior to 20 
2021, because I do think it's changing pretty radically right now um, because of, you know, the murder of George Floyd and the movement over the last, you know, nine months. But, but prior to that, 1% of venture capital was going to black people. And, you know, then if you split it by gender, like the percent that was going to black women is just like, uh, it's, it's probably zero. I mean, basically statistically zero. Um, but of course, you know, black people in America make up, you know, 13, 14% of the population. And so you're talking about a gap in allocation of 12%, right? I mean, this is, this is significant. And so, and so if we agree that talent does not over index based on any gender or, or racial specificity, then you're over investing in one demographic and significantly under investing in another one. So you've got this societal issue in terms of there, there's significant discrepancies in, in, in wealth allocation that, that, are, that are fundamentally wrong. But then you've also got this, you're supposed to be seeking alpha as an investor and you're over investing in a particular demographic. So you're likely getting into a lower quality band of talent because you're just, you're digging too deep there. Whereas you should be more evenly spread across the demographic spectrum. Oh, gotcha. So it's basically finding the opportunity that's out there in the market, given that no one else has really kind of tapped into it in that, in that specific way. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And, 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 and by doing so, you also happen to be doing the right thing for the country. <laughs> like you also happen to be like helping to balance things, yeah. you know, in the country. Yeah, that's true. Now, I was intrigued by one of the relationships you had with an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, John Ingram, uh, who you met with the Nashville Soccer Club that you're involved with. Um, he, he really seemed to have an influence on you. So particularly around what you were talking about with the societal purpose, with the allocation of funds. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you learned from from Mr. Ingram, how you've kind of brought that forward, and uh, you know what are some of the the next steps that you've kind of moved on to from from there? Yeah, so you know john John's family, the Ingram family, is a very uh, philanthropic family, and they're very, very much committed to the city of Nashville. Um, so you know if you stay here any amount of time, you will quickly find that there are a group of families. Uh, the first family, the Ingram family, um, the Turner family, uh, and, and others, but those are sort of like the three big names um, yeah. that you will find have made investments all over the city in education and arts. Uh, you know, now John making one in, in in sports, but it's really kind of a community asset in investment, quite frankly, uh, bringing a major league soccer team to to town. Uh, nonprofits around entrepreneurship, um, you know, in, investments in equity. So I, you know, what I would say is. That there is a legacy in his family of of investing in in the community, right? Um, and so, probably if I learned anything from John, it was that the the way that people in Nashville uh, behave when they are uh, lucky enough to be successful is that they invest back into the community, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I got to I got to see that years before I ever met him. You know, uh, just just through the works. You know, you know, um, I I actually didn't meet John in uh, in Nashville Soccer Club. I met him in service. I met him when I was on the board of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and he was the mm -hmm. chair of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And he was also an investor early on in Jumpstart Funds. So we so we we met in business and in service, uh, okay. which I think in, made 
something as significant as a, as a pro sports deal possible. We had already had, you know, sort of a relationship, but John is also, and I must say, John, I really should say Ingram Industries isn't in, is an investor. They're a limited partner in my new fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, when I, when I shared what I was doing with him, I mean, he was immediately, you know, like, uh, you know, I I'm in, but I think that my, my organization wants to be in, we had one meeting and, you know, Ingram was, I think the first, uh, yeah, Ingram was the first institutional investor, I mean, the first corporate uh, limited partner to, to join Jumpstart Nova uh, as an investor, which, you know, is always huge. When you get that first investor, that gives you the credibility to then go on to the next institutional investor, you know, and at this point, uh, you know, we just closed on four of them, um, you know, today, actually. So, you know, I think, I think John, you know, John is a friend. Um, and he is a, uh, you know, he's a great guy. Uh, I, I hope that he is also learning from me, uh, you know, because we have different backgrounds and we, and we, um, I think we have a lot to share with, e- with each other. Um, but, but really just seeing how somebody with that kind of uh, financial strength, uh, you know, carries themselves is, is uh, it's, a, it's a great, role model. He's not a flashy guy. He's very, you know, he's very kind of, you know, ordinary. If you saw him in a grocery store, yeah. think he's, do you think he's anyone, you know, just anybody, uh, you know, and not knowing he's, you know, chairman of, you know, the largest privately held company in the city. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, he's just a nice guy, very approachable. You know, I could pick up the phone call him anytime. I was just you know, a great guy. There was something that, uh, your friend, uh, Clint Smith wrote in your book and let me, let me kind of read the quote for you directly is Marcus was always somehow bigger than whatever thing Marcus happened to be doing at that time. And when I read that quote, um, what I thought about was the higher calling that you're, you're, you're doing something that's kind of serving a larger purpose than what you're actually doing at the time. And um, you talked about how that's kind of related to you, but I want to kind of talk about that a little bit related to, in fact, some of the people are on this call uh, are doing it too in healthcare, and um, you know it's funny when you talk to students about why are you going to healthcare. Very rarely does anyone say, "Well, to make money," because of a higher calling. What would you What would you say uh, to any student kind of listening to this podcast, this web session, about um, uh, you know that higher calling and how important that is? Look, I I was uh, I was very lucky because I wasn't called to healthcare. I stumbled into it and thank God that I did uh, because, you know, it's what I'm uh, quite happy to do for at least the foreseeable future. And I'm, I can't see that being any less than the next 20 years, Um, you know, because, because in healthcare, you got to be willing to put in several decades to make an impact. I think that's just sort of the the nature of, of, of this world that we're in. Um, You know, healthcare is, uh, so I, 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 one of the personal, one of the philosophies that I personally uh, adhere to is uh, the Japanese philosophy of ikigai, uh, of the, the intersection of what you're really good at, what you love to do, what the world needs, and what you will get paid for, what the world will pay you for, and sort of at the center of those things, the uh, Japanese have called that ikigai. Um, I love that, and I think that if you're fortunate enough to have uh, Something in healthcare, which the beauty of healthcare is it's so broad that almost certainly like it doesn't have to be clinical. You know what I mean? There, there are things you could do to contribute to it. And 
something that you, if you can get the thing that you love and the thing that you're good at nailed, healthcare has needs and will pay you for it, right? Like this is, that's the really cool thing. So you can, healthcare is one of those uh, great industries where you can do good and, and get paid for it because there's such a huge economic infrastructure in place. You know, I think that there are, so let's take an, another industry where I think the world needs it and you can be passionate about it, but we haven't quite gotten the, you can get paid for it thing in place yet. And I really hope we figure it out quickly, which would be climate, right? Um, the world needs it, uh, but we haven't like worked the economy part out yet. You know, it's still ridiculously sort of a fringe thing. Um, and healthcare is not healthcare is the largest slice of the United States GDP. Right. And so, uh, there's, there's huge, huge opportunity. And I think part of what we're talking about is, um, the, the opportunity in private equity, right. Where, um, investments in healthcare, because healthcare has to change for a confluence of reasons, um, will require capital allocation. And that's a particular path will require uh, ingenuity and entrepreneurship will require you know, new, new therapies, you know, so there's research, there's science in place will require people to, to take healthcare out of the dark ages of uh, marketing and make it a more consumer friendly, you know, uh, business model. There, there's just, you know, no matter what your skill sets are, they, they almost certainly can be applied to healthcare, which is, which is awesome. You know? and, and, and we see that happening. I mean, uh, Melissa threw up that chart at the beginning where it showed, you know, 40% of our students are going into hospitals and healthcare and then more are going into other areas. Unfortunately, a very small number are going into private equity right now. Maybe perhaps they don't understand enough about it to really kind of want to understand how do you kind of move into service in that area. But if we were to look at that pie chart 20 years ago, instead of 40% going into hospitals, it would probably be something like 90, 95%. Sure. We've seen you know, pretty dramatic changes over a relatively short period of time as, as different industries have kind of come up. Um, when, when you're, when you think about, um, you know, again, uh, the, the students that are out there and, and, and trying to understand what to do. I mean, you talked about being an entrepreneur and the need to understand the very lowest level of the business. Um, when I began at Cami, I had to learn what domain name settings were. I had not a clue about, <laughs> but I had to alter them one day. Um, what, what would you say, you know, um, to the student, this is what you need to think about. Here's, here's where, where you really need to kind of focus your competencies on. Well, I think you need to really understand how the healthcare industry works. And I don't think almost anyone does a great job of really articulating that, quite frankly. Um, you know, and that's something I'm, I'm actually working quite a bit on right now uh, is, is helping to frame up sort of in a similar way to what I, what I did in the book around like, how do I simplify the jargon and the framework of what actually a business is? I'm, I'm trying to work on that for healthcare too, because uh, it took me a long time to like wade through all the nomenclature and the acronym soup and all these other kinds of things. But, you know, at the heart of it, um, there's how care is delivered and how care is paid for. Uh, and then there's, (laughs) right. There's how care is delivered and there's how it's paid for. And then, and then useful, in both of those is data, right? Um, and that's it. That's literally healthcare. Uh, you know, then you got the patient and you got the regulators. That's the whole thing. So if you can kind of understand that that's the, that's the 
fundamental scaffolding of the whole thing and mm. then figure out where do you want to play. Uh, that's a good start. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are going very, very deep into a very specific thing. But the problem is because healthcare is in a period of change, okay, it really, it absolutely is. It's in a period of change. If you don't understand how the larger thing works, you may find yourself spending a bunch of time and energy investing into something that is going to be gone in five years. Uh, and I wouldn't want anyone to do that, right? Um, so I'd want you to be able to look at the way the things are today, understand they're changing every day. Healthcare does not and should not change overnight, but it is changing faster than it has in the last 25 years right now, right? Um, and you need to sort of understand that. You need to understand why that's happening, what's driving that happening, and try to skate where the puck is going. Try to say, okay, is the thing that I'm doing going to be resilient, going to be anti-fragile as this, health, as this healthcare industry changes over the next 5, 10, 15 years? One of my favorite quotes from uh, Wayne Gretzky, by the way. Totally. It's, 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 it's going gonna, it's gonna to live forever because it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's so good. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great comment to kind of add too, because I think what our programs do is they educate students on what healthcare, what healthcare is all about. And it's, it's that large body of knowledge that we kind of bring to a student, you know, not focused on a specific area, but understanding overall Here's what you need to think about with healthcare from the financing perspective, from the marketing perspective, from the patient experience and your relationships with physicians, technicians and the like. I think those are all kind of really, really good concepts that our programs get through. So uh, good answer. And again, another quote from your friend Clint Smith from the book, um, you had the it factor when it came through. And um, Clint, you know, Clint is very, Clint is very kind. He's a good friend. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I deserve those, those words, but you know. Well, my, my first comment when, when I read from what your friend said about you was like, like, wow, you've got really good friends. Cause I know what my friends would say. <laughs> 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 but uh, when you look at students or when you look at young people, how can you see that it factor in them? Curiosity and excitement, right? And a, and, a, and a willingness to learn, a willingness to, to, to work hard, a willingness to do what's asked of them, you know, sort of early in your career. I mean, you know, ambition is, uh, is, a, is a wonderful trait, but it has, to be, uh, it has to be properly paired with competency or, or you know, it, it, it leads to some, to some bad outcomes, generally speaking. Um, and so... Yeah, I, th I think curiosity and excitement are, are kind of the two things you look for, kind of the gleam, right? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and, and I think the working hard part is, is core and the, too. And the working hard. Yeah. Well, I, this has been a great conversation, Marcus. I've got to tell you, I really enjoyed myself with it and, and, and got to learn a little bit about you and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, it's, it's been great for you kind of being on this. And uh, I really just uh, want to thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored that you would uh, open up the platform and uh, allow us to have this conversation. Really appreciate it. Be sure to check out Marcus's Amazon number one best-selling book, Create and Orchestrate, about claiming your creative power through entrepreneurship. Thank you for listening to the Master Your Healthcare Career podcast, hosted by Dr. Anthony Stanowski, CAMI president and CEO. 
Subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. For more information, you can visit www.cami.org.